welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the topics we'll be covering today are everything to do with the spleen. So we're going to go through splenic function, anatomy, things that can go wrong, surgery, opsy, and splenic artery aneurysms. So let's talk about the spleen. The spleen is a hematopoietic and immune functioning solid organ that sits in the left upper quadrant in a posterior position. It's usually about the size of the person's fist, and so about 12 centimetres long and 7 centimetres wide. It sits, as I mentioned, in the left upper quadrant, usually under the cover of the thoracic rib cage. It's usually found deep to the 9th to 11th ribs. It's fed by a splenic artery and splenic vein, as well as some short gastric vessels, which come from the gastroepiploic artery and feed into the upper pole of the spleen. The relationships of the spleen include to the posterior wall and greater curve of the stomach, which it is attached to via the gastrosplenic ligament. It's also related to the kidney, which is just inferior and posterior to it, and it's attached to this with the lianorenal ligament. It's also associated with the diaphragm and again attached to it by the lianophrenic ligament. And the splenic flexure of the colon is also related to it and there is a splenocolic or lianocolic ligament as well. The other important relation is with the tail of the pancreas, which is often closely related to the hilum of the spleen. Talking a little bit more about the arterial supply to the spleen, The splenic artery is a branch from the celiac axis, and there's a couple of arterial variations or patterns of supply to the spleen. The first of these is a distributive pattern where there's multiple branches that come off the main trunk, usually two to three centimeters before reaching the hilum of the the spleen. And this is important because if you're doing a splenectomy, you have to find each of those little branches individually and clip and divide them. The other pattern is called the magistral pattern, and this is where there's a single pedicle formed by the artery, and that enters into the hilum as a compact bundle before branching off into the terminal branches. The splenic artery usually reaches the spleen by running along the superior portion of the pancreas, and it typically takes quite a tortuous course. The splenic artery gives off a number of branches along its length to the pancreas and also usually gives off the short gastric vessels as well as the left gastroepiploic artery. The splenic vein is formed from the tributaries from the spleen and typically runs in a fibrous groove in the posterior aspect of the pancreas and it will combine with the superior mesenteric vein behind the neck of the pancreas to become the portal vein. And the splenic vein will often have the IMV joining it behind the body of the pancreas. Another important thing to know about the spleen is that you can get accessory spleens or splenunculi, which I think is the best word in the world. 
And these little splenunculi can be found in many different locations. This is important because if you're removing a spleen for ITP and you leave a splenunculus or accessory spleen behind, then the patient can still have the disease because of that residual spleen. In terms of the locations of the spleen, the most commonly found locations include the hilum of the spleen, the gastrosplenic ligament, and the pancreatic tail. And it also can be found in the greater omentum or even down in the pelvis. From an embryological perspective, the spleen develops from a mesenchymal condensation in the dorsal mesogastrium, usually during the fifth week of development. And it originally functions as a hematopoietic organ, but it becomes more of a lymphoid organ in the 15th to 18th week of development. Before I go on to talk about what the spleen does, I think it's a good thing to do to have a look at what a histopathological slide of a splenic section looks like, because I'm going to describe to you what the different contents of the spleen are, and this will help you understand what the function of the spleen is as well. So the spleen is made up of the red pulp and the white pulp. The red pulp, if you have a look at a histopathological section of a spleen is the sort of pinky colored stuff in the picture in the H&E stain. And basically this is a blood filter. And so it's a part of the spleen where the blood runs through and it removes old and damaged and dead red blood cells along with antigens and microorganisms. And the little venous sinuses in the red pulp have little gaps in the endothelial lining, and this allows normal cells to pass through, but abnormal cells will remain in the cords and are then phagocytosed by macrophages. The white pulp is the dark purple stained little circular areas on the H&E stain. And the white pulp stains purple because it's full of white blood cells. And basically the white pulp contains central arteries that are surrounded by a sheath of lymphocytes. And these are known as the periarteriolar lymphatic sheaths or PALs. And these central arteries and lymphocytes around them are comprised of T cells. And this is so that antigen presenting cells that are coming through the spleen can present antigens to these T cells that are along the blood vessels. Adjacent to this T cell zone is a lymphoid follicle that contains B cells. So if the T cells are activated by an antigen on an antigen presenting cell, they can then activate their B cell friends that are sitting next door. And then the last thing to know is that there's a marginal zone. And the marginal zone sits between the red pulp and the white pulp, and it contains more dendritic cells, which are able to capture and present antigens to the lymphocytes. The spleen has the largest accumulation of lymphoid tissues in the body. And obviously, this means that if you remove the spleen, the ability for the body to fight off certain pathogens is diminished. So what are the functions of the spleen? So the first one I've already mentioned when we were talking about the embryology of the spleen, which is a hematopoietic function. During fetal life, the white and red blood cells are produced in the spleen, and in disease states such as myelofibrosis, the spleen can return to being a hematopoietic organ. The second function is immune, which you may have guessed given all of the white cells that are in the spleen. The T cells and B cells help to fight off infections. And there's also a lot of dendritic cells and macrophages in the marginal zone. And these are really important in trapping antigens, processing and presenting those antigens to the T and B cells. 
And also the splenic macrophages are really, really good at recognizing and clearing bacteria that have been labeled with immunoglobulins. So that's why they're so good at clearing encapsulated organisms because they are labeled with the immunoglobulins and then they're identified and removed in the spleen. The next function of the spleen is a filter function. And so when I was talking about the red pulp, I talked about how the system in the red pulp helps to clear old and dead red cells. It also has a function to remove pathogens within cells or circulating in the plasma in this red pulp zone. Um, And also other things such as parasites or cells that have cellular inclusions can also be removed in the red pulp. And this is called the reticuloendothelial system of the spleen. And then the last role is not so important, but basically there's so much space in the venous sinuses in the red pulp that the spleen is sort of a reservoir for extra cells. And so at the normal size, it only contains about 50 mils of blood, but in splenomegaly, that storage volume can expand and red cells and platelets can end up being sequestered or being held in those venous sinuses. So next, I wanted to go on to the list of things that can go wrong with the spleen and therefore why we care about it as surgeons. Turns out there are a lot of things that can go wrong with the spleen. Spleens can develop infections, have cysts, become very large in size, have neoplastic or malignant processes going on with them, become hypersplenic, so things like ITP have congenital issues, sequester, become congested, have immunological problems, and also can be the subject of traumatic injuries. I want to talk about a few of these different types of issues that can go wrong with the spleen, just so we firstly know about them and secondly know about which ones we might need to intervene on as surgeons. So the first issue I mentioned was infections. Spleens can develop splenic abscesses, and the most common source of this is due to hematogenous spread, but you can get contiguous spread from adjacent organs, such as the pancreas, colon, or kidney. The most common organisms related to splenic abscesses are gram-positive cocci, such as staphs, streps, and enterococcus, and gram-negative enteric organisms. There's also some strange ones like mycobacterium, actinomyces, and fungal infections such as candida in immunosuppressed patients. In terms of management of splenic abscesses, it's treating the underlying cause. For a unilocular abscess, you can perform image-guided percutaneous drainage, and for multilocular abscesses or overwhelming sepsis, patients may require a splenectomy. There are some other infections that can lead to the development of splenomegaly. The most common ones that I've come across are CMV or EBV infections presenting with splenomegaly. But there's a couple of other ones to know about. This includes tuberculosis, tropical splenomegaly due to infections with malaria, for example. There can also be splenomegaly as a result of a schistosomiasis infection, but usually this is a secondary process due to portal hypertension associated with hepatic fibrosis, Um, but it can also be due to hyperplasia of the spleen itself because it's phagocytosing the worms and ova and toxins. And visceral leishmaniasis is another infection. It's a parasite 
and it can cause hepatosplenomegaly as well. The second thing I said can go wrong with the spleen is splenic cysts. The majority of splenic cysts are actually pseudocysts and they're is usually a history of either previous trauma or previous severe pancreatitis. And they'll often present as a smooth, unilocular, thick-walled lesion, and it can have focal calcifications. Typically, the treatment is just to observe them if they're asymptomatic, or you can percutaneously drain them or perform a total or partial splenectomy or cyst wall resection um, for these cysts if they're symptomatic. True cysts lined by a squamous epithelium occur about 10% of the time, and these are obviously benign, simple cysts. The other thing to think about are cysts caused by parasitic infections, and the most common one of these is an echinococcus infection or hydatid disease. Typically, hydatid cysts in the spleen are asymptomatic and found incidentally, but they can rupture and lead to anaphylactic shock. The diagnosis is usually done with a combination of characteristic imaging findings with uh, cyst wall calcifications or daughter cysts, as well as echinococcus serology. We'll talk more about echinococcus in the liver infection part of the podcast. The next thing that spleens like to do is become enlarged in size, also known as splenomegaly. Splenomegaly can be because of a number of different causes, and the definition is splenic enlargement to either 400 or 500 grams. The normal size is about 150 to 200 grams. And the definition of massive splenomegaly is more than a kilogram in size. Splenomegaly can cause pain and discomfort to the patient, and this may be an indication to remove the spleen, regardless of what the cause of the splenomegaly is. The next topic is neoplastic conditions related to the spleen. So the most common type of neoplastic condition affecting the spleen is lymphoma. It's more common that the spleen will be affected in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma than in Hodgkin's disease. Splenectomy may be indicated in these patients as a therapeutic or diagnostic procedure to relieve symptoms of splenic enlargement, to help manage cytopenias, to facilitate chemotherapy administration, or potentially to establish a tissue diagnosis. And in about 72% of patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma involving the spleen, the cytopenias will be improved with splenectomy. The other hematological neoplastic conditions that can affect the spleen include chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML. CML is a myeloproliferative disease where the normal bone marrow is replaced by neoplastic myeloid cells, and this is that one with the Philadelphia chromosome, so fusion of fragments from chromosome 9 and 22. And with progressive disease, you can get fevers and splenomegaly, and patients can present with a blast crisis where the spleen starts to sequester their hematopoietic cells, which can lead to anemia, infections, and hemorrhage. And the treatment is medical with hydroxyurea and interferon alpha and chemotherapy, um, but a splenectomy may relieve symptoms and help manage the cytopenias, so can sometimes be indicated. And CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, is also another indication, sometimes for splenectomy, where hypersplenism can occur and the spleen is chewing up the lymphoid cells and leads to splenomegaly, so they may need a splenectomy as well. Primary tumors of the spleen are very rare, but can 
develop intersplenar megaly and risk of spontaneous rupture. Some of the more common primary splenic tumors include benign tumors such as hemangiomas and lymphangiomas, but tumors such as hemangiosarcomas can also develop, and the risk factors for that include exposure to vinyl chloride and thorium dioxide. Metastases to the spleen can also occur, and the more common primary tumors that do this include breast, lung, and melanoma. There are a number of inherited or acquired lymphohematogenous disorders that can affect or involve the spleen. The first of these that I want to talk about is ITP, or idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. It's the most common indication for splenectomy for hematological diseases. And it also scores itself an entire section in our surgical curriculum. So this is something to pay attention to. So ITP is an isolated thrombocytopenia. So there's normal bone marrow and an absence of any other cause. It's mediated by autoantibodies to the platelet membrane glycoproteins, which then leads to overactive phagocytosis of these platelets, typically in the spleen. The two main types of ITP include acute and chronic. Acute ITP is common in children and typically will follow an acute viral illness and spontaneously resolve. Chronic ITP is more common in adults, especially young females, and the definition is it has to persist for more than six months with no cause identified. Typically with ITP, the spleen is normal to small in size, and the presentation is that patients present with purpura or little ecchymoses, petechiae, epistaxis, and gingival bleeding. And on investigation, you'll find that patients have low platelets, normal coagulation studies, and normal bone marrow aspirate and trephine. The management is typically medical. For patients who have platelets that are high, they may just be monitored. For patients who have platelets that are less than 50, the hematologist will typically treat these patients, and treatment includes short courses of steroids or intravenous immunoglobulins. Interestingly, there's a type of ITP that's linked to Helicobacter pylori infections, and treating the Helicobacter can sometimes improve the thrombocytopenia. Surgical management is a splenectomy. Indications for splenectomy and ITP is basically patients that fail medical management. So they have persistent or recurrent disease that's not able to be managed medically, and some of the other things that um, hematologists may try above steroids and IVIG include cytotoxic agents and plasma phoresis. Splenectomy for ITP results in about 80% of patients being cured, 15% of patients having a partial response, and 5% of patients that may fail to respond. And some potential causes of failure include missing accessory spleens, or if you rupture the spleen and there's intra-abdominal implantation of splenic tissue that then starts functioning. Some other congenital or inherited conditions that can be associated with the spleen include hereditary spherocytosis. And this is an autosomally dominantly inherited abnormality of the red cell membrane proteins. And this leads to an increase in the permeability of the red blood cell membrane. And this makes it fragile, but also rigid and spherical. 
because the red blood cells are less deformable, they're more susceptible to destruction in the spleen. The clinical presentation is typically in childhood with anemia, intermittent jaundice, splenomegaly, and gallstones. And patients can present in a spherocytosis crisis, so with anemia, jaundice, fevers, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. For investigations, a peripheral blood film will show reticulocytes with a negative Coombs test, and an abdominal ultrasound is often done for these patients to look for gallstones. The treatment for hereditary spherocytosis is typically a splenectomy, but this is often delayed until patients are at least six years old, and this is to reduce the risks of OPSI. The indications for splenectomy are to treat anemia, prevent the development of biliary pathology, prevent crisis events, and to prevent later hemochromatosis. And at the time of splenectomy, if pigment stones are present, then a lap coli is often performed at the same time. Sickle cell disease is an inherited condition with a mutation in the beta hemoglobin chain that results in non-deformable red cells that can be sequestered and destroyed in the spleen. And typically the spleen will enlarge as a child and then eventually infarct and shrink over the lifetime of the patient. Some indications for splenectomy in sickle cell disease include hypersplenism, sequestration crises, which lead to requirements for massive transfusion, development of pain and splenomegaly, development of splenic abscess or massive splenic infarction. And thalassemia is another inherited condition that results in a defect in hemoglobin synthesis. And again, this can lead to those same problems, hypersplenism, sequestration crises, abscesses and infarction that may lead to a requirement for a splenectomy. Some other pathologies that are inherited related to the spleen include hereditary erythrocyte enzyme deficiencies. So this includes pyruvate kinase deficiency, which is an autosomally recessive inherited um, issue with the red blood cells. And this leads to reduced deformity of the red blood cells and these spiculated looking red blood cells. And that can lead to splenomegaly and hemolytic anemia. Splenectomy can be done in these patients to improve their hemoglobin levels and reduce their transfusion requirements. And also at the same time, a cholecystectomy should be performed because they have a much increased risk of cholelithiasis. And a G6PD or glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, which is an X-linked inherited condition that causes hemolytic anemia when there's infections or exposures to certain foods such as fava beans, and usually splenectomy is not required in G6PD deficiency. The management is just avoiding inciting drugs and physiological stresses, such as infections. Another condition that can affect the spleen but doesn't usually require splenectomy are congestive states that are mostly related to portal hypertension. So liver disease, such as cirrhosis, and venous thrombosis, such as the of the portal vein or splenic vein can lead to splenic hypertension and enlargement. And this can also happen in congestive cardiac failure. So that's something just to think about on your list of differentials if you're looking at an enlarged spleen. 
There are some immunological conditions that can affect the spleen. We've talked a little bit about ITP already, but rheumatoid arthritis has a condition associated with it called Felty's syndrome, which is where you get rheumatoid arthritis and enlarged spleen and neutropenia. It's super rare, but basically leads to intrasplenic destruction of granulocytes such as macrophages, and this causes an immune-type picture for the patient where they have an increased risk of infection. The indications for splenectomy in Felty syndrome is if there's severe or recurrent neutropenia or recurrent infections, and often about 80% of patients will have an improvement in their granulocyte levels following splenectomy. Other type of immune conditions such as sarcoidosis, amyloidosis, SLE, and adult onset Stills disease can also affect the spleen. And the last condition I wanted to mention is splenic trauma. The spleen is the most commonly injured intra-abdominal organ with blunt trauma, which is mostly what we see in Australia. I won't go into detail here about what to do for splenic trauma because I'm sure we'll be talking about that in the trauma podcasts, but it's good to know that there are five different grades of traumatic splenic injury and management options include conservative embolization via a endovascular route or operative management. So how do you perform a splenectomy? Our curriculum talks about being able to do an elective splenectomy for a normal-sized spleen and also comments on laparoscopic splenectomy and trauma splenectomy. So in terms of a splenectomy for a normal-sized spleen, it's probably going to be one of the indications we've talked about in this episode. The preoperative considerations include making sure that the patient has had their pneumovax, haemophilus and meningococcus vaccines at least two weeks preoperatively. You want to correct any anemia, thrombocytopenia or coagulopathy, which is often done in close consultation with the haematologist and may include preoperative intravenous immunoglobulins for patients with ITP and really low platelet counts or even steroids. For a patient with massive splenomegaly, it's a little bit controversial, but theoretically you could organize preoperative embolization of the spleen to try to reduce the size of the spleen. And the last thing to consider is what your approach is going to be. In general, in the elective situation, a laparoscopic or minimally invasive splenectomy can be considered for most indications, but it's important to think about the size of the spleen. If the spleen is more than 20 centimetres, it's unlikely you're going to be able to get this out through a small cut or at least without a hand-assisted technique. So you may consider an open operation in these scenarios. Some other potential relative contraindications to a laparoscopic approach include uh, portal hypertension, other contraindications to pneumoperitoneum, pregnancy, previous extensive upper abdominal surgery, and active hemorrhage with hemodynamic instability. For a laparoscopic splenectomy, patients are typically placed in a lateral decubitus or a semilateral decubitus position, and you want the patient's left-hand side to be elevated. This positioning may need to be done with the use of a beanbag or other types of supports in order to hold the patient in that position. I'd perform a optical entry at Palmer's Point, 
and then insert a 12 millimeter trocar and a 5 millimeter trocar along the costal margin which you'll be using as your camera port and also two working ports. And then I insert another 12 millimeter port in the left lower quadrant, which is going to both be the port I use to staple the hilum as well as the port where I'll remove the spleen. The ports may need to be placed further away from the costal margin if the spleen is very big. Dissection of the spleen then involves dividing its attachments. So I start by taking down the splenic flexure and moving the colon out of the way. I then go laterally and divide the lienorenal and the lateral lienophrenic ligaments and use my left hand to sort of roll the spleen medially in order to clear these avascular attachments laterally. I then let the spleen roll back and will divide the short gastrics using a ligature device. At this point, the spleen should just be attached to the diaphragm superiorly, and I leave this attachment there so the spleen doesn't move around and fall down while I then do the dissection of the hilum. And at this point, I also have a look around for accessory spleens because it's likely they're going to be found adjacent to the spleen, such as in the hilum or the region of the pancreatic tail or near the splenic flexure. And once I'm sure that there is no accessory spleens, I then dissect out the hilum. This needs to be done carefully and As mentioned before, there can either be a magistral or a distributive pattern of the arterial vasculature. So I want to make sure that I'm being wary. There may be multiple vessels that will need to be um, identified and divided. A really important part of this part of the dissection, so when you're clearing the hyla vessels, is to be mindful that a number of patients will have the tail of the pancreas right up in the hilum of the spleen. And so it's important to clear that filmy avascular tissue and dissect the pancreas off the spleen. Sometimes rolling the spleen medially and coming at it from behind can be helpful to identify the pancreas there and to peel it away from the vessels. So once the vessels are identified and the pancreas is safe, I then divide the splenic hyla vessels with a endogia vascular stapler and you may need to take a number of different bites depending on the number of vessels that you come across in the hilum of the spleen. At this point, the spleen should only be attached to the diaphragm superiorly, and I complete the dissection of these attachments of the lionophrenic ligament in order to completely free the spleen. I then insert a extra large endocatch bag through that 12 millimeter left lower quadrant port site and roll the spleen into the bag and then bring it out of the operative field by pulling on the string to pull it down into the left lower quadrant. At this point, I will check for hemostasis, and I always leave a 14 French Blake strain in the splenic bed. Once I'm happy with hemostasis and the placement of my drain, I then remove the ports under vision, and I'll always close the 12mm port site in the left upper quadrant. I then pull out the 12 millimeter port side in the lower quadrant and I extend the incision to make it about 15 millimeters to two centimeters in size. I pull up the edges of the endocatch bag and use a Rampley's forcep to morselate or macerate the spleen into pieces to pull it out through this incision. I have to be really careful not to spill any splenic tissue into the abdomen during this part of the procedure because that can then risk the development of um, splenic implantation and the new spleens developing, which will, especially in ITP, increase the risk of failure of this procedure. 
If the spleen is very large, then I may remove it through a small fan and steel incision. I then close the fascia at that port site, inject local and close the skin. Postoperatively, I check the drain for drain fluid amylase on day one and day three. And I monitor the patient's full blood count closely in the days postoperatively. Open splenectomy is the other alternative, both for a elective spleen where a laparoscopic approach is not favoured and for trauma-related splenectomy. In general, you're going to do the procedure with the patient in the supine position and you want to make sure that you're wearing a headlight and that you have a skilled assistant. Typically, you can do a midline laparotomy, but for smallest spleens, you may consider a left upper paramedian or a left subcostal incision. The spleen is usually quite high and posterior behind the rib cage, so you're going to want to use a fixed retractor to help you with your exposure, such as a Thompson retractor. And again, once you've gained safe entry to the abdomen, you want to mobilize the spleen. And this can be done either lateral to medial or medial to lateral. So with a lateral to medial approach, you're going to use your left hand placed over the spleen and you're going to perform or give gentle medial traction on the spleen. And this will enable you to divide the lionorenal and the lionocolic and lionophrenic ligaments in order to roll the spleen towards you. As you pull downwards, you'll be able to further divide the lionophrenic ligaments. And then also this should be able to give you access as you come over the top of the spleen to the short gastric arteries, which you can secure however you like with a ligature device or you can clip and tie them. Once you've completed this mobilization, you should be able to completely mobilize the spleen up into the wound and you can place a pack up in the left upper quadrant where the spleen was. This is where you then identify the splenic hilum and you want to be careful to tease away the pancreas from the splenic hilum vessels. As I've mentioned, it can be easier to do this by looking behind the spleen um, and you want to just use blunt dissection to tease it away. Once you've confirmed that it's away, you can either use a Roberts and clamp across the hilum and remove the spleen or if you want to use a vascular stapler, you can do that as well and then you can remove the spleen. You want to have a look at where the spleen was because those um, splenic attachments can have small vessels in them that can ooze. So you want to make sure you have adequate hemostasis. And again, you're going to leave a big drain. So what are the potential complications of a splenectomy? In general, there is a risk of bleeding and pancreatic injury or pancreatic fistula. Patients can develop an abscess in the left upper quadrant or wound infections of other types. And there's also a risk of post-operative splenic or portal vein thrombosis. The other complication I wanted to talk about is overwhelming post-splenectomy infection, also called OPSI. OPSI is a episode of septicemia or meningitis occurring at any time after removal of the spleen. It's important to know about because it has a 50% mortality rate and lots of morbidity associated with it when it occurs. The risk of OPSI is much higher in children with an annual risk of 4.4% compared to adults, which is much lower. And the greatest risk is in the first two years post-splenectomy. 
The pathophysiology of OPSI is that, as we've already talked about, the spleen is important for the opsonization of encapsulated organisms, and it has the largest accumulation of lymphoid tissue in the body, including those splenic macrophages that are really good at opsonizing encapsulated organisms. So if you lose your spleen, then you have a higher risk of infection from these organisms. The common pathogens associated with OPSI include Streptococcus pneumoniae, which is the most important one that has about 60% risk of death with infection, Haemophilus influenza, Neisseria meningitides, and for both of or for all of these three, we have a vaccine for them, so patients should be vaccinated. Other common pathogens include E. coli, Staph aureus, Strep pyogenes, and malaria. The presenting complaint of OPSI is a rapidly progressing clinical course with the development of septic shock, hypoglycemia, acidosis, electrolyte imbalances, respiratory distress, and DIC. So how do we prevent OPSI from occurring? As I've already mentioned, patients should be vaccinated, and these vaccines should be given two weeks before elective surgery or at least two weeks after an emergency operation. Although there is a caveat that in patients who have a traumatic splenectomy, you're worried about follow-up for, you should give it to them before discharge. I would definitely suggest you have a look at the Spleen Registry website, which you can just Google Spleen Australia, and it's run through the Alfred Hospital. And anybody can register themselves onto the Spleen Registry, whether that's the patient or the GP um, or yourself. And this has some really great summary information about what vaccines and what antibiotics patients post-splenectomy should have. In general, the type of vaccinations include a vaccine against pneumococcus, meningococcus, and Haemophilus influenzae type B. And patients should also be given antibiotics. So for adults, it's typically oral amoxicillin, 250 milligrams daily. And the spleen registry now says for three years or lifelong if immunosuppressed. So that's something interesting that they don't recommend it lifelong anymore. And you may be able to test a patient's peripheral blood smear for Howell Jolly bodies to see whether or not they have any splenic function, um, especially if a patient's had an embolization and you're not sure whether or not they've got a functioning spleen. Patients should also be given an emergency supply of antibiotics, which is usually two grams of amoxicillin, and they should be advised to have that urgently and present to the emergency department if they develop a fever. So the last topic I wanted to talk about in relation to the spleen is splenic artery aneurysms. And these are quite interesting because they're the most common visceral arterial aneurysm that makes up to about 60 to 70% of patients who have visceral arterial aneurysms. Risk factors for the development of splenic artery aneurysms include atherosclerotic disease, portal hypertension, liver transplants, pregnancy, it's more common in female patients, increasing incidence as you get older, and also connective tissue disorders such as Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. The different types of aneurysms you can get is a true aneurysm, which involves all layers of the vessel. And for splenic artery aneurysms, they're more common to be little saccular aneurysms off the side of the vessel rather than true fusiform dilatations like you'd get in a AAA. The other type of aneurysm you can get is a pseudoaneurysm, 
These result from a tear in the intimal layer of the vessel, and then the blood then dissects into a false lumen or into the space around the artery, which is just held by the loose connective tissue. And these have a very high risk of um, rupture and bleeding. Splenic artery aneurysms can be asymptomatic, may present with pain, typically vague epigastric or left upper quadrant pain, or may present with rupture. And this can be rupture into the peritoneal cavity with bleeding and shock, or can be rupture into the gastrointestinal tract, presenting with hematemesis or melina. The diagnosis is often made on a CT scan with intravenous contrast. And the management depends on the presentation and the size of the aneurysm. So for a small aneurysm less than two centimetres in size that's found incidentally and is asymptomatic, this may be monitored serially to make sure that the size doesn't increase. And the risk of hemorrhage of a less than two centimetre aneurysm is small. If the aneurysm is more than two centimetres, then a treatment option should be undertaken. Some other indications for intervention include patients who are symptomatic, women of childbearing age or who are already pregnant, because interestingly, 50% of splenic artery aneurysms that occur in pregnancy will rupture during the pregnancy, and it's most common to occur in the third trimester or even within the last two weeks of pregnancy. The thought is that the increased blood flow and cardiac output in pregnancy, as well as the hormonal changes in estrogen and progesterone, increase the likelihood of the splenic artery aneurysm rupturing. And up to 75% of women who have a splenic artery aneurysm rupture in pregnancy will have a mortality event related to that. And up to 100% of pregnancies with a splenic artery aneurysm rupture will result in fetal demise. The management options for a splenic artery aneurysm include endovascular techniques such as stenting or coiling of an aneurysm, especially if it's a little saccular aneurysm. And if it's a pseudoaneurysm, usually these are embolized and can include laparoscopic or open surgical techniques with resection of the aneurysm, which can be combined with a bypass or a splenectomy depending on the location of the aneurysm. Obviously, in the setting of acute rupture, if the patient's stable enough, then endovascular means may be undertaken. If the patient's very unstable, then a laparotomy and control of bleeding, often with a combined splenectomy um, due to time constraints and patient being quite hemodynamically unstable, is required in order to treat the condition. And that brings us to the end of this podcast on the spleen. Please remember to rate, leave me a review and subscribe to the podcast. I love reading your reviews and it makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!